This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. A few years ago, I had the great pleasure of interviewing former teacher and now education researcher and presenter Simon Brooks. He's affiliated with Harvard Graduate School of Education and has presented extensively on a concept called cultures of thinking. This is based on the work of Ron Richard and his team at Harvard and explores what they call the eight cultural forces that shape the way we think and learn. Simon worked as a teacher for many years here in Australia, but he's now based back in his homeland of the UK. And fortunately, I was able to catch up with Simon when he was recently back in Sydney presenting to schools on cultures of thinking. We had the chance to talk about a number of issues surrounding the idea, including what it actually is, how to ask great questions, what happens if it doesn't work, and practical ways to implement cultures of thinking. It's a serious subject, but Simon's depth of insight and conversational style allow plenty of room for a bit of good humour to creep in. And we're going to bring you the entire conversation over a series of four episodes, which work on their own, but can also be listened to as one conversation, as the episodes flow into each other. We start off by asking, what is Cultures of Thinking all about? Simon, I believe it's been at least three or four years, maybe three years since we've last spoken about Cultures of Thinking. I think it has been. It's a delight to be here again with you. Well, we've been thinking for a while since then. Uh, Well, at least I think I have been thinking. Um, And I suspect a lot of other people have been thinking as well. But what is a culture of thinking? What do we mean by that? Yes, I think that concept of culture is just so central. And of course, there's a difference between thinking and a culture of thinking. I mean, it would be probably a a very arrogant thing to assume that um, there are schools out there where children don't think. I mean, actually, I don't think I've ever been in a classroom where I've seen that nobody is thinking at any point on the assumption that everybody, all of the bodies in the room are alive. You know, (laughs) (laughs) thinking is happening. But when we talk about building a culture of thinking, yeah, we're, we're pressing a lot deeper there. We're trying to really put thinking front and central in a way that becomes inscribed in just how things happen in that space. So if there's no culture of thinking then, is it plausible to think that we might be not thinking as much as we could? Or what kind of things are we doing if we don't have a culture of thinking? What sort of things are we thinking about if it's not built into our sense of what culture actually is? Mm. Complicated question, but you know, a culture of thinking is kind of an unusual thing. So I think if we haven't got a culture of thinking happening, then probably the best way to describe what that might be would be a culture of transmission. Ah, just information from you to me, me to you. Mm. I mean... Um, Charles Dickens, in his novel Hard Times, uh, in many ways satirizes this approach to education. Um, and, and the text actually begins with the description of children as empty vessels and is the job of the teacher to fill those vessels with yeah, wisdom. Right. You know, and, and the implication there is that what's in my head and in these books has got to be transmitted into the minds of the learners. That's not what a culture of thinking looks like. No. Well, I guess these days you could probably just send a text message. Mm, Absolutely. That (laughs) might achieve the same thing. (laughs) Students come into the classroom. I'm going to send a group text. Therefore, (laughs) information has been transmitted. But still, culture, though, I think is a word that uh, seems to conjure up a a, a much stronger image than um, 
obviously this idea of just transmission, but but culture in a in a classroom. I mean, cultures vary from from I guess uh, culture to culture in terms of uh, country to country, but also school to school, class to class. Teachers have different types of culture that they like to try and develop in their own classrooms. So, why why is the culture part of cultures of thinking so important? We believe that the culture teaches just as much or perhaps more than the teacher teaches. How so? So an example of that might be um, one of the the most thrilling experiences for me as as an educator and in my role of working with lots of schools is I get to visit lots of different classrooms. I get to go in and see teachers at work. And this is probably a good place, actually, to say that we have so many extraordinary teachers Mm. globally, and Mm. particularly here in Australia where we're conducting this interview as well. And um, one of our, our prime agendas in building a culture of thinking, one of the thinking routines that we put front and central is a, is a simply expressed thinking routine, and it's what makes you say that. What we're looking for there is that we're trying to create an atmosphere when after a child has made a thoughtful offering of some sort, a teacher will then say, what makes you say that, to press for justification, to dig deeper into the rationale behind their thinking. So that's, that's a move that a teacher makes, right? Mm. But here's the astonishing thing that I've observed happening in lots of the classrooms I've been to. In classrooms where teachers are making a particular agenda to say what makes you say that over and over and over again, something quite magical happens after a while. Right. And that's when children working in small groups, often without the direct supervision of the teacher start looking at each other during dialogue and saying, what makes you say that to each other? (laughs) Now, this is perhaps a good example of culture doing as much of the job of teaching as the teacher because in that example, the teacher's not physically present in that dialogue. But because they have been saying what makes you say that so repeatedly, something about that statement has rubbed off into the day-to-day interactions of these young people. I've heard kindergarten students asking each other what makes you say that during collaborative work. That's the culture at play. That's the culture of the classroom building an expectation for those young people to step into that they press each other for justification. That's really interesting because I don't normally associate... Uh, school students asking for justification when when someone might suggest something in a group task like that. So how do the how does the student then respond? So let's say one student says, "What makes you say that?" How does that other student then respond? Do they do they start to pick up what's going on here? That oh look, you're just you're just doing the "What makes you say that?" thing again. Can you stop doing that, please? Or do they actually genuinely start to explain what they actually meant? And again, it depends on what the culture of the classroom is. So when teachers first start using this phrase, what makes you say that a lot, um, often students can look a little bit like the, a deer caught in the headlights. Like they're not quite sure how to respond to it. Somebody says, what makes you say that? And they're thinking, what do you mean? Am I wrong? <laughs> you know, why, are you, why are you doing this to me? Yeah, am I in trouble? <laughs> but as time passes, what happens is that they realize that the teachers who are are speaking like this are genuinely interested to dig deeper into their thinking. It's a really genuine thing, right? It's, it's, It's coming from a place of truth. Like, what makes you say that? I'm really intrigued to hear more about your thinking. Now, when teachers model that type of energy to students, 
then the students who then speak to each other in this fashion pick up on that same energy, right? It's coming from an authentic place. So if it comes from an authentic place, it doesn't feel like they're being caught out or tricked. So their response is likely to be an honest attempt to justify their position. So let's actually think about what some of these cultural forces are. I mean, there is a book written about the eight cultural forces, and I'm sure that you're very familiar with it, and it's a very interesting read. But for the sake of our listeners, can you just run us through those eight cultural forces, or the, the eight cultures of thinking? Sure. I mean, I can, I can list those cultural forces for you, and then would you like a brief expose of the eight? Uh, well, we're going to go into one in particular, and just before we do that as well, I want to, I want to ask a, another particular question. But just to set the scene here, let's just talk about what generally what those forces are. Yeah, okay. So the the cultural forces emerged from research done by Dr. Ron Richard at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, mm-hmm. particularly the Project Zero Wing. Yep. And this was research initially that was done as part of his PhD in the 1990s. First published in a book in 2002 called Intellectual Character. Yep. And the idea that underpins the cultural forces is that traditionally we've viewed culture as being this quite sort of elusive, um, ethereal force, um, something that we probably have little control over. Um, It's like a tidal wave that takes us with it. And these forces um, were identified by Ron in his research as being the factors at play that constitute the culture of a classroom or a school or indeed any form of community that comes together. Right. Briefly, the eight forces are time, interactions, language, opportunities, environment, modeling, routines, and expectations. And here's the thing about these forces. There's bad news and good news, actually. Oh, dear. (laughs) So we'll lead with the bad news. And maybe it's not bad news. If we've got a growth mindset, maybe this is good, good news. But the bad news is that we can't opt out of any of these forces. Well, that's interesting. Why is that? So I can't, as a classroom teacher, I can't say I choose for the cultural force of interactions not to apply in my classroom. Yeah, because you need to interact with your students. I'm going to be interacting with them. Ironically, if I make the choice not to interact with them, I'm still making a choice around interactions. Yes, that's right. So I can't back out. I can't say, no, interactions is not a force that's applying in my classroom. I can't say I choose for the cultural force of modeling not to apply because Mm. worryingly, Every single second I'm in the company of children, mm. whatever I say, whatever I do, I'm modeling. Yes. I'm a model for them. So I, again, I can't opt out. And time is a, is a similar thing as well because the day has a beginning and the day has an end and you need to be able to work within that time frame. Regardless of what you would like to think about how you would like to spend time in your day, the sun will rise and the sun will set. Sure. And if I have an hour worth of time to spend with children, if I allocate 50 minutes to one pursuit – and 10 minutes to another pursuit, my respective allocation of time sends messages to the learners about what I value. Mm. So we can't opt out of these cultural forces. But the good news that comes with it is once we realize that they are at play, that they're there shaping the learning experience and the culture of our classroom, then we can leverage them to send the messages that we want and build the culture that we want. Now, the, uh, the Cultures of Thinking book was published around 2015, if, if I remember correctly. And 
I think that that, from a time perspective, if I can just think about the culture of time, mm. I think that that's pretty close to a time when there was, in the world's history, unprecedented adoption of uh, technology, uh, particularly in the mobile space. And before we talk about one of the forces, um, I'd, I'd just like to ask you do, you, do you think now, a few years on from having published the book, that we are now seeing more pressure on thinking or less? Hmm. David Perkins at the Harvard Graduate School of Education many years ago coined a phrase to describe the process of what happens when many of us go to visit art galleries and museums. Mm -hmm. And um, that phrase that he coined is called audience impressionism. <laughs> okay. And the concept behind audience impressionism is that if I go to an art gallery, I might, if I'm not careful be inclined to very quickly wander from artifact to artifact, yeah. pausing mm -hmm. uh, briefly, perhaps for two seconds at the most, at each artifact, yep. um, maybe just to respond by thinking about whether or not I like it, uh, perhaps to read the accompanying text and spending more time reading the text than looking at the work itself. I am merely getting an impression, but I'm not delving deep into the meaning or the ideas being represented in any of these unique works. Mm. It's possible to argue that the world that we now live in is characterized by many opportunities for audience impressionism. Yeah. For instance, if I look at my um, mobile phone feed, my social, my preferred social media, I can scroll through that thing really, really quickly. Yeah. And I'm basically doing a virtual uh, enactment of audience impressionism. I'm, I'm skidding over the surface like a, like a rock that's skidding over the surface of a lake but I'm not in any way looking below that surface and investigating in more detail. So I worry, in answer to your question, I worry potentially that we're living in a world which is enculturating um, an attitude, a learning tendency in young people mm. just to look at the surface but not to go deep. To skim stones. Sure. And therefore part of our job as educators is to provide a counterculture to show them the joy and the value that can be found in digging deep and not just skimming over the surface in a way that perhaps yields little meaning. I guess that's a perception of where we think we might be now. This is a very difficult question to answer, I think, because no one has a crystal ball. But do you mm. think we're seeing a trend of that increasing, as in more stone skipping? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I it would be that would be an interesting subject for a PhD study. <laughs> I'm busy enough, so <laughs> not for me, thank you. <laughs> I mean, anecdotally, it would seem that way, wouldn't it? It's it's very easy to sit on the train, for instance, mm. and see everybody immersed and quickly in in the main skimming through their feeds. Um, is there a sense that educators feel that students are less inclined to dig deep? Perhaps we hear that anecdotally sometimes. Um, perhaps that's all, always existed. I mean, the other part of your question, sort of this notion of the impact of, of technology, is that without a doubt, our students are increasingly exposed to a wide range of different sources. And we all know we've talked about the, scour the scourge of fake news. Yeah. But there are yeah. so many different ways in which information is coming at them, represented in different ways with many different agendas. So perhaps a consequence of that is that the disposition to become healthily sceptical is even more important for us to enculturate now in our in our young people and our learners than perhaps ever before. 
Well, let's talk about one of the cultural forces, and uh, I think this might actually be a favourite for, for both of us, but it's the cultural force of language. And I'm going to quote something here, and it's from, the, uh, from a resources page which uh, accompanies the book, mm. uh, which is freely available uh, online. Um, it says here, using a language of thinking that provides students with the vocabulary for describing and reflecting on thinking. What kind of a vocabulary are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a fascinating point to consider. So back in the early 2000s, Ron Richard, Mark Church, Karen Morrison published a book called uh, Making Thinking Visible. Mm. And in it, they presented a really interesting tool that's called the understanding map. The concept behind the understanding map is, is essentially a response to a question. And, and they, they did a lot of qualitative research in response to this question. Yeah. And the question is, what type of thinking does happen in classrooms which are thoughtful, where thinking is at the heart of what happens? What particular modes of thinking do we notice taking place? And the understanding map is a visual representation of what those types of thinking are, those type of thinking that seem front and central in a culture's a thinking classroom. And it's those types of moves that the understanding map represents that we press for in a culture of thinking. And what do those maps look like? So uh, um, map is an interesting way of describing it. Um, it's, in, it's called an understanding map rather than an understanding taxonomy. So listeners may be familiar with the Bloom's taxonomy, yep. where there's definitely a sense of hierarchy, um, whereas in the understanding map, there's no hierarchy. So these are eight moves, we call them, thinking moves that are in service of building and developing understanding. So I'll tell you about a couple of them. One of those moves is making connections. So I guess a question that comes along with that is we're asking students, how does what we are learning about now fit with what we learned about yesterday, with what we might be learning about tomorrow, with your own personal experiences, with the world around us? And you're looking for words that help them to describe those connections? Is that, is, is that where this is going? We're pressing for connection making whenever we can. So in a culture of thinking, one of our core beliefs is that we believe that learning is a consequence of thinking. If thinking's not taking place, we believe, then neither is learning. So for instance, if I am a lecturer and I'm, sp- I'm gonna stand up on the stage and I'm going to deliver my spiel to the audience, <laughs> who may well be sitting there comatose, potentially dribbling, who knows what's happening in the audience. <laughs> Um, I may well be doing a thoroughly good job of developing my own understanding. Yes. Because I'm performing one of the other moves on the understanding map, which is building explanations. When we explain things to others, we develop and deepen our understanding. So it can be easy for a lecturer to conclude a lecture and pat themselves on the back and think to themselves, wow, that was a thoroughly amazing lecture. Yeah, because I really understand what I just presented. Sure, I'm getting that way more than I did at the beginning before I started. And that's, of course, because they've been engaged in one of these moves from the understanding map. But if the learners aren't engaged in those moves, then we theorize a core Project Zero idea is that they're not developing understandings. So one of those moves they might... Um, make is to make connections and and what that might look like is a lecturer with a cultures of thinking spin might take key moments to stop during the lecture and just simply offer the provocation connections okay what comes up and so and so students would then make some kind of an explanation so 
to say this very simply, they'd use words to construct sentences to say, okay, I connect this with that and that's how I understand what you've just explained to me. Is it, is it, is it as simple as that? Simple as that. And we might get, we definitely would give them thinking time first to show that they that we value the process of coming up with connections because if i just look if i just look at my students and go connections begin yeah well how much time that's that i want to ask you that how much time though so and this is i think i wanted to ask you about this a little bit down the track but i'll okay. ask it now so if we want to give a student a chance to make a connection what are we talking two seconds three seconds Think, does, is it contextual? I mean, how do you work that out? When when does when does the thinking time become awkward silence? It's an interesting one. So there's lots of research that's been done over the years on thinking time, and much of the research has indicated that when we teachers ask our classes questions, on average, we wait anything between 0.7 and <laughs> 1.5 seconds of silence. And then the awkwardness becomes all-consuming, and then we plough on and continue regardless. Okay. One second later, what do you mean you don't have the answer? You haven't figured it out yet? What's wrong with you? Exactly, right? Whereas in a culture of thinking, we'd be looking for at least a three-second wait time. Gee. And that might just be silent time, right? And yes, the first ten times that happens, it could feel awkward. But in due course, what happens is we start building a culture that feels contemplative that feels thoughtful, There's, it, there is space for people to form ideas. So if I was to say to my class connections, firstly, I might say to them, I'm going to give you two minutes of thinking time to actually jot down your thoughts. But if I wasn't giving them that, I would just say connections and I'd allow as long a pause as I needed to hear an answer. Yeah. So here's, here's another spin on this, I suppose. Is it relevant to all of us all the time? So I'm just thinking in terms of... Um, how we inter- interact, uh, how we converse with other people. Mm. Um, would you think about, some, <laughs> for example, if you're having a conversation with someone, would you just stop and say, what do you think, or connections? Is this a problem that we have with these days where people just keep talking and talking and talking? Yeah, perhaps we like the sound of our own voice more than thinking about our conversation as being a gift for our fellow conversationalists. <laughs> In the next episode, we look at ways to ask great questions. It might seem like a simple thing, but have you ever really asked yourself how good you are at asking useful questions, or questions that are effective? And what if we need to practice something counterintuitive first in order to get there, like not talking? So, like, Styles Research explores this idea. What would it be like if we consciously practiced just occasionally at key moments stopping talking when we're in classrooms with children and we might perform a bit of a sort of dramatic uh, expression with our face and this is not going to work through the podcast medium no. but I'll do it anyway where we go like this when we pause and we show through our dramatic expressions that we are pondering and often it might come when a child asks a question so a, a child might say hey So what does that exactly mean? What does that line of this poem mean? To find out more about ways to ask great questions, make sure you join us for the next episode. If you found this helpful, or know someone who might also find it helpful, then please share it with them. And remember, you can subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app completely for free. I'm Colin Klubik. Until next time, bye for now.